I'm Aaron Gullius. And I'm Samantha Engel, and you're listening to Great Lakes Lore. A podcast where two historians dive into legends of murders, ghosts, cryptids, and more in the Great Lakes region. Today, we're talking about the haunting history of Mackinac Island, and we have a guest. Yay! Hello! Claire, would you care to tell us a little bit about yourself and why we asked you to be here today? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know! Why did you know? Uh, so, my name is Claire Herhold. Uh, I am uh, just finishing up my PhD in public history at Western Michigan University, Go Broncos, uh, which is how I know Samantha. <laughs> and um, I had the enormous privilege of uh, working for Mackinac State Historic Parks for six seasons. Uh, I was full-time for five seasons as an interpreter on the island. I did one winter as a collections intern and outreach interpreter. Uh, And then I did uh, one part-time season uh, in guest services. So uh, that's, I got, I got to live and work on Mackinac for uh, six months out of the year for six years. And uh, that was an enormous privilege. Wow. I was there for four hours once. I uh, <laughs> and I did. I spent one summer working on the island, which is how I became vaguely familiar with some of these stories, plus some family vacations here and there. The hardcore island folk—they—they're the ones who know all the good stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I should say my history with Mackinac goes back even farther. I was uh, in the Governor's Honor Guard Scout program for four oh, wow. years, uh, and my dad was in the Honor Guard as a uh, a young tween. Um, so my family has a long history with the island. That was always our go-to family vacation spot. So. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Claire, we like to start off our podcast episodes with some background for the subject. And so we thought you would be the appropriate one to tell everybody a little bit about Mackinac Island today. So for folks who are not from Michigan or haven't ventured up to the island, what's what's it all about? Well, the number one thing to know if you're not familiar is that no matter how it's spelled, it's pronounced Mackinac. <laughs> we, we know you're not from here if you say Mackinac. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's number one. So Mackinac Island is a, a small island about two miles east-west, three miles north-south, um, located in the Straits of Mackinac, uh, kind of right between the upper and lower peninsulas of Michigan and right between Lakes Michigan and uh, Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. And it's an extremely touristy place. It is kind of the go-to tourist spot for a lot of Michiganders Mm -hmm. and and other folks in the Great Lakes. 80% of the island today is operated and owned by Mackinac State Historic Parks. It was Michigan's first state park. It was also uh, a national park. It was the second national park ever created uh, before becoming Michigan's first state park. And it's a system of state parks that um, not only operate sites on the island, but also on the mainland in the lower peninsula too. Um, but they do own and control 80% of the island. Most of that is trails and beautiful forests and places that most people who visit the island never <laughs> go, which is, I think, the best part of Mackinac to get out and explore. Mackinac is made of a really unique kind of limestone called Mackinac breccia limestone, which is only found in the Straits, which results in some beautiful geological formations. Um, and you don't get to see those if you just stay downtown. Um, but there is lots of cool stuff downtown, too. Uh, it's very touristy, lots of shops, uh, and probably most famously, Mackinac has had a ban on automobiles since 1898. So uh, if you go there, get used to horses and bicycles, that's the ma- how the majority of people get around or walking. Uh, in the winter, they do use snowmobiles, and there are, of course, emergency vehicles on the island, too. There is a small community of year-round folks. It's probably a little bit closer to 400 these days of people who are there year-round. Uh, they live in a small area called Harrisonville. 
Um, there is a year-round school on the island. There is also an airport on the island. Uh, in the summertime, that residential population balloons up to three or 4,000, um, but the year-round population is quite small. Um, but it's a really unique place. There's some really amazing history that I know we're going to get into tonight, but I can't recommend visiting enough if you've never been. Very cool. Well, Sam, was it always a touristy place or was it something else? So I'm going to give you um, sort of a, a brief background here. Well, Aaron and I both are going to, and then you'll hear more about some of these things mentioned when we start talking about some of the stories and legends. So Mackinac Island was formed around the the estimate is 13,000 BC with the recession of the glaciers, um, about 3.78 square miles with just over an eight mile circumference, I think maybe eight and a half. Archaeological evidence from the island establishes indigenous populations as early as 900 AD. And it's the Anishinaabek people who called the Great Lakes region home. And this name was used for a group of culturally and linguistically related tribes, including the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, the Potawatomi, the Algonquin, the Salto, the Nipissing, and the Mississauga. So all of these different tribes are considered part of this larger Anishinaabek culture. For purposes of Mackinac Island, we will be concentrating on largely the Ojibwe and the Ottawa nations. Now, the name Mackinac itself, um, if you've seen it, it's uh, got an interesting spelling about it, as Claire alluded to. Um, it's M-A-C-K-I-N-A-C, and that comes from the French interpretation of the indigenous word Michilimackinac, which means the place of the great turtle. And so there are some wonderful indigenous stories about the island being the turtle, and the Anishinaabek have a great reverence for the turtle. It's, it has a lot to do with their creation story. But before the arrival of Europeans to the area... The Ojibwe and Ottawa nations fought with the Iroquois for control of the island and the Straits area. You can see how it would be a very opportune um, piece of land to have control over. And that um, leads us largely to the Europeans because they all also wanted control of it, too. <laughs> yeah. So the, the first Europeans to arrive in the region were, were French. The first European structure on the island was a Catholic mission chapel built around 1670. Today, a reconstructed birch missionary hut stands at the edge of Marquette Park, named after Father Jacques Marquette, who established missions in St. Ignace and Sault Ste. Marie. Now, in 1715, the French built a fort, Fort Michelin-Mackinac, on the mainland in Mackinac City, which is on the tip of the Lower Peninsula, sort of, I don't know, maybe the, the tip of your middle finger of your right hand, somewhere yes. around there, um, <laughs> if you're looking at it that way. Uh, after the French and Indian War, which ended in 1763, the British took control of the fort, and then during the American Revolution, the British moved the fort to the island, renaming it Fort Mackinac, believing it to be more secure on the high bluffs of the island. Now, after the American Revolution was won by the Americans, the British stayed there for various reasons that you kind of get into when you listen to Hamilton. But the <laughs> Americans take it back after the Jay Treaty in 1796. And they're there until the War of 1812, when the British capture it very easily because the American troops hadn't been told there was a war going on. So which is <laughs> that's just the War of 1812 in a nutshell, really. In mm -hmm. 1814, the British would repel an American attack during the Battle of Mackinac on what is today a golf course. During all this time, the island was a very important stop for Great Lakes trade, particularly the fur trade. But by the late 1800s, the island had become primarily a popular tourist destination, and that legacy continues on today. 
Yeah, so now we want to talk a little bit about the how the structure of the episode because this isn't going to follow our usual nice pattern that I think we've established <laughs> in our first uh, however many episodes, eight episodes eight, I, think, I think or so we've yeah. had now. Mackinac Island is often named one of the most haunted places in Michigan. And given the history we've just related, that's not surprising. We have war, uh, clashes between cultures, be it European and indigenous and various European cultures too. There's a lot of movement through the island, first for trade and then eventually for tourism. And I mean, especially today, I mean, tourists from around the world come to the island. I worked at Starbucks, <laughs> so everybody <laughs> needs their coffee as soon as they get there. And and there were loads of different um, folks who were coming. It's not just a Great Lakes destination. And so people have visited, they moved in, they moved out, um, just lots of movement. And then the landscape itself, the water, the limestone, you know, people theorize that all of these things kind of hold on to these stories a little bit differently than than other types of landscapes. And so there's a lot going on here. Um, and instead of following our usual pattern, we're going to look at different stories that have circulated around the island related to different locations and different kinds of locations. So we have spots connected to war, then we have legends and um, and stories related to some of these natural uh, formations that are on the island, and then other stories more related to tourism. And the one thing that we want to make sure that we're doing is highlighting the actual history of the island, which we think, we hope, <laughs> we are confident <laughs> that you'll find far more interesting than any made-up ghost stories. And um, we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. Yeah, and I've, I've got to say, this did start off uh, initially as a sort of ghost stories of Mackinac episode. And as yep. as we got into it, Sam was like, hey, hey this is no, nope. I think we can do this differently. <laughs> the angle that that Sam came up with for this episode, I, I think, is is fun and is satisfying. Yeah, and I think being respectful to the real history. I mean, there there's real tragedy that happened here, and to make light of that by just making it a fun ghost story that makes you feel creeped out for a few minutes does a terrible disservice to to the folks who lived through those horrors, and also to to the history profession. <laughs> to be to be quite honest, and so um, we are all history professionals here, <laughs> and so we'll we'll talk about some of these things as they arise as well. Yeah, because it is it is a, a tragic history and sort of start off with with war and and tragedy mm -hmm. there's a place called skull cave which is i, I think a, a great name for anything and in in 1763 <laughs> sort of coinciding with the end of the french and indian war there was a native american uprising called pontiac's war it's during this conflict that we have the origins of a fairly creepy place and it's called skull cave it's a shallow cave it's, it's one of these limestone formations and it looks kind of like a skull uh, if you squint a little bit, there are other things that are named after things that look a lot more like what they are, but Skull Cave. So 1763 on Mackinac Island, there's a British trader named Alexander Henry who has a fascinating life and a very long, interesting story that is beyond our purview here. But Henry was at Fort Michigan Mackinac when native forces captured it. He escapes, runs away goes into a cave, makes a bed out of branches and goes to sleep. It's dark while he's doing all this. And when he wakes up, he realizes that something is not quite right. He's lying on something kind of uncomfortable and he realizes it's a bone. 
And at first he thought it was a deer bone or something, but then in his words, quote, when daylight visited my chamber, I discovered with some feelings of horror that I was lying on nothing less than a heap of human bones and skulls, which covered the floor End quote. Now, archaeologists believe that the cave was probably used as an inhumation or to use a normal word, a burial site by Native Americans. Um, it wasn't a place, as I saw on some websites, it wasn't a place of human sacrifice or anything like that. It was just <laughs> got to put the body somewhere and it's a limestone rock sitting in the lake. So, you know, digging a hole isn't going to work. Because of the spooky history, it's not surprising that it's been the site of weird reports. According to something called the Ghost Quest database, which is apparently a real thing, Tourists who visit it frequently report shadow figures, apparitions, and spectral entities, um, strange feelings of a presence in the vicinity of the cave, and experiencing cold spots and, quote, drops in temperature that defy explanation. I don't think they defy explanation. I just think you haven't bothered to explain it, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's cold near caves, maybe. It's interesting because there's no, as far as I can tell, there's no report of anything violent, tragic, anything happening at the cave. It's just a place where there were dead people and no longer are. So it's sort of the equivalent of a haunted cemetery, I guess. Yeah, I, I just grabbed um, I have a copy of, of Henry's account of the incident that I just grabbed off my bookshelf. And I just want to double check that I was remembering this correctly, but he's taken there by indigenous people that he's befriended so you know it's not even like he's hiding somewhere he's not supposed to be the understanding was like you will not be disturbed here this is a very sacred place this is a place that has been used for burials so it will be a safe place for you so it's it's not like anything violent happened there you know it it is essentially that he hid out in a cemetery for a night i mean and and his own his own telling of it is is like the, the line i quoted he does make it a little lurid but he's he, he was known as somebody who was a good storyteller. He was exactly, a, a, a raconteur. Yes. And so he's going to make this he's going to make this kind of fun and, and kind of like my night in the mystery cave of skulls or something like that. And, and he's very young when that happens. He's in his yeah. very early 20s, too. So, I mean, mm. I think he, his personality really comes through in the way that he tells it. <laughs> So the next location that we want to talk about is Fort Holmes. And Fort Holmes is close to my favorite place on the island, I will say. It sits at the highest point on the island. There are stories that folks who go up there at night uh, hear the voices of men who aren't there. And of course, they're attributed to, to being soldiers. And that's really all I found as far as solid this is kind of a thing that could happen there. Claire, I don't know if you have heard other stories about things that happen at, at Fort Not Holmes. at the fort itself or not at the highest point of the island itself. Okay. The the place that people always got the heebie-jeebies. Um, there's two ways to get to Fort Holmes. You can kind of take the long road around the back on the north side, or you can take the stairs straight up. And um, the stairs, you access the stairs from just to the east of Skull Cave. And the place that I always heard stories about I'd heard that some psychic was brought to the island and she like had a meltdown was actually at the stairs itself. Um, So that was always the place as, as you were going up there in the dark with your flashlight to, to engage in shenanigans (laughs) that everyone just kind of like ran up the stairs as fast as you could. Cause that was always the place where people said like bad vibes, bad vibes, but I never heard or felt or or saw, saw anything and never really heard anything about Fort Holmes itself. Now, Fort Mackinac, we've already talked about the history of the fort, so we'll just share some stories and reports of paranormal activity from there. So in, in, a ho- in the hospital there, there are reports of feelings of sorrow 
and seeing phantom limbs. The, I, the one thing I read said there would be like a pile of bloody legs in the corner. <laughs> and I, I want to know what, what that is supposedly from. I mean, there were there were no amputations. There was no major war. There were very right. small battles. There were no. There's yeah. also two hospitals in the fort, too. Just to be clear, there's an earlier hospital within the walls of the fort uh, that was later converted into a storehouse. And then there's a hospital, a newer hospital outside the walls of the fort, which is now the state park headquarters. So there's two hospitals. Which one are you talking about? Mm. Neither one would have had amputated no, limbs. Not not piles. <laughs> I mean, that's what I thought was like. What what was happening here at, between at the these most, soldiers? I think maybe someone no... got frostbite. You know, I mean, like, that's the, the biggest danger for soldiers there. So yeah, I, mm. I, I think you know these stories develop and 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 people have images in their head. It's like, well, army hospital, you know. Image Civil War Army hospitals exactly. of, of the, the yes. piles of limbs out back. You know <laughs> yeah. that that's sort of what's probably in in people's mind. And I, I just also love the the f- reports of feelings of sorrow. Um, it, it's like oh gosh, this. Well, yes, you know what? An abandoned old that means you're right, human. <laughs> an abandoned old Army hospital is going to bum you out a little bit. I yeah. mean, going to be a little a little melancholy. So after. Uh, after the wars, um, the fort was a home for families of the soldiers stationed there. After an outbreak of typhoid, many children died at one point, and there are reports of objects being moved and apparitions of children in the officers' stone quarters. And I actually don't know of any typhoid outbreak on the island that's been documented, and certainly not one that killed people inside the fort or, or officers' children. Officers are the only people who had families at the fort. So, But I will say as a not the officer's stone quarters, um, which is where the tea room is today, if you're familiar with the dining option mm. in the fort. Also mm-hmm. the oldest public building <laughs> in the state of Michigan. But the officer's hill quarters, which is directly across from the stone quarters and, and up the hill, as the name would suggest. That was always the place where I heard stories of hauntings constantly, oh, okay. was the hill quarters. And they were hauntings of children. We do know that it's a duplex, and we do know that the family that occupied, I believe, the east side of the duplex uh, in the 1880s was a couple named Mary Ella and Calvin Coles. And we do know that while they were stationed there, they had two very, very, very young children pass away, um, Josiah and Isabel. And I know that Isabel had just hit her first birthday, and Josiah, I think, was around two, no older than that. And my understanding was that they died of a digestive ill ailment that was hereditary in their family, that they had some issues um, digesting breast milk and that that kind of caused this kind of wasting sickness in the kids. And they later had another, a third sibling die of the same thing at a different post was my understanding. But that their quarters was always the place that I did hear stories of. I had a lot of um, particularly male coworkers who would not go near that building. Hmm. Um, I had friends who had seen, who believed that they had seen children's faces in the window um, although these are tiny, tiny kids, so I'm, you know, like just, just their little <laughs> eyes in the window. Um, but, um, I also had a friend who was the exhibit cleaner. So her job was to go around and clean the exhibits and upstairs in that side of the duplex, the kids rooms, it was period setting. So they were set up to look, you know, toys all over the floor and look like kids had been playing. And the entire um, door to the room was covered in plexiglass so that visitors could not enter, but they could look in, you know, so you had to get the big suction cups to lift off the plexiglass to get in the room if you needed (laughs) to clean it. So no one is going in this room except the exhibit cleaner. And she said that every time she went in the room, it was haywire. She said the bed would be moved, the toys would be moved, everything would be moved just constantly. Mm. Um, And I never experienced anything in that building 
myself, but one of the things, because when I was interpreting there, I was there to represent an officer's wife, right? That was the story that I was there to interpret. So we tried to hang out around the officer's quarters to kind of represent those women's stories. And so I would often, um, in between demonstrations, hop into the exhibit and play piano to try to, you know, entice guests in with the sound and to (laughs) start conversation. And the thing that no one prepared me about for in museum work was how many visitors come to museums who are, who claim to be psychic and are coming into museums in order to experience a phenomenon happened huh. so often. And I, once I remember I was playing the piano and I finished the song that I was playing and this, and, you know, turned around to greet visitors and start interpreting. And this woman kind of waved me over to the barrier and she said, um, she said, I don't mean to freak you out. Um, but she said, I'm, I'm a medium. And she said, I just, I just think that you should know that the children in this house really enjoy your playing. Oh, and I was like, that is lovely. And also I need to, I have somewhere to go. (laughs) (laughs) I need to be at a demonstration very quickly. Um, so yeah, so that, but that was the building that I always heard people talk about. And I had a lot of coworkers who just would not, they would take the long way around the fort. They wouldn't walk in front of that building. I think that's that's hmm. fascinating that there are these these experiences and it's it's children's ghosts, but the the sort of history behind it is is different than what you see in some of the in some of the the, the ghost tales or or isn't you know as as well known in the wider ghost media as it is to people who are involved with the totally. island itself. Yeah, we used to do this program. I, I believe that that the state park there still does it. It has been a full 10 years since I worked there. Um, but I do, I believe that the state park still does this program called ghastly Mackinac, which was kind of their answer to a ghost uh, tour. Mm-hmm. Instead of talking about ghost stories, they just tell kind of the more adult stories that don't, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. aren't told when you are a family friendly, you know, museum <laughs> during the day. <laughs> but I would, when I, when I was the one giving that program, I would mention to guests at this, at the Hill quarters, you know, we do hear more ghost stories about this building than any other building. But I said, you can imagine why, as a mother or as parents to, in the army, you know, you're, you're being shipped off from post to post with very little control and you're leaving behind two babies here, mm-hmm. you know, that, mm-hmm. that are buried in the post cemetery there and you have to leave and you don't ever get to come mm-hmm. back. I mean, you can imagine the kind of emotional investment there. So I always told guests like, I'm not supposed to tell you ghost stories, but we do hear more about this building. And to me, it makes sense. It's mm-hmm. a very tragic story about, parents having to leave children behind after a, a family tragedy, after two family tragedies back to back. Without question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of cemeteries, that's sort of next on the list. And and I, I didn't go into detail and um, I'm going to move the curtain in the outline that we make before the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are three cemeteries on the island. St. Anne's is a Catholic cemetery. Then there's the post cemetery, which is um, the military cemetery. And then the Mackinac Island Cemetery, so the the general cemetery for the rest of the folks. <laughs> and um, they're all sort of located in the same little coming together of a couple different um, uh, walking paths. Very close to Skull Cave. Ooh. <laughs> uh, I didn't know, Claire, if you had any stories about the cemeteries that you heard or, um, you know, I, I've been, they're fun, cemet- 
fun cemeteries. Historians think walking through yes. cemeteries mm-hmm. is fun. So they are fun cemeteries to walk through and explore if you're on the island. Um, but there are some notable folks who are in there if you know the, the island stories. Too. Definitely. Um, yeah, there's very interesting people in all three of the cemeteries. There's really incredible stones in all three of the cemeteries. I mean, it is a historian's mm-hmm. dream to be able to walk through them. I like the arch, the arch in front of the... Yeah, the cemet- the, the, the wall the around the Catholic yeah. cemetery yeah. is so beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is a beautiful spot. I, I d- have never really heard a lot of story. People always be like, oh, the post-cemetery. Okay. And I, for, I guess for some reason, because it's associated with the military, people think it's freakier. Mm-hmm. Um, I never experienced anything there. <laughs> Um, I turned 21 uh, one of my summers working on the island. And so I was in college and I had a bunch of friends come up to visit. uh, And um, we all got kicked out. of. It was the night before my 21st birthday. So we got kicked out of the bars at 10 p.m. because I was a minor. So we couldn't get back in the bar till midnight. Um, So my (laughs) island friends were like, we had two hours to kill. Let's do a night hike. And all my poor college friends who came up and were like in their cute little club outfits were like, we're doing doing a night. What? (laughs) So uh, one of the places, we kind of did a long hike. We went to Arch Rock. We went to Pascal Cave. And then we went to the Catholic Cemetery. I worked in the the Biddle House Museum. And many of the Biddle, there's there's a Biddle in every single cemetery on the island. Um, cause the, the sun converted to Protestantism, the Catholic cemetery was always very important to those of us who worked in that house because so many biddles were in there. So we wanted to go to the cemetery. Um, that was kind of our last stop before we were going to go back downtown and get me my first legal drink. And I had a friend from college who, um, throughout her life claimed to experience the paranormal, claimed to be a medium, claimed to see and hear the dead. And, um, she had a couple of experiences all that night. She claimed that she heard a lot of voices and could see eyes looking at her from Skull Cave. When we walked by, we were in the cemetery and, uh, I was dating at the time, a man who could be very taciturn, could be very silent. And, uh, she, she said that she saw this man in the cemetery who was kind of standing off to the side and not speaking to anyone. And she's like, I thought it was your boyfriend being his normal curmudgeonly self. Um, and then she said she kind of turned around and went to rejoin our group. And my boyfriend was standing with us and she turned back around and the man that she had seen earlier was not there uh, and was not my boyfriend. Um, so uh, that's really the only, uh, story I've ever heard of that I know of, uh, in a past life, maybe. Um, right. So that's really the only, and I spent a ton of time in that Catholic cemetery, especially, uh, and never heard any other stories. But like I said, Mm -hmm. my, my college friend did say that, that she had seen someone in the cemetery there. Okay. Uh, Claire mentioned this, this earlier. Uh, it's a very interesting, unique kind of limestone that the, uh, that the island is, comprised of. Because of the way this limestone is, the island is home to a number of interesting and very ancient uh, rock formations and other geological features. And often, but not always, these are linked to legends or myths attributed to the indigenous inhabitants of the island. Now, the degree to which we can trust that these stories are faithful to actual native beliefs is, as we'll see, a little variable. One example is a story collected by the writer Charles Montgomery Skinner, and he related the story of an Ojibwe woman who stood on one of the rocky bluffs overlooking the water. Today, it's known as Lover's Leap, waiting for her lover who was off fighting a battle. And as she watched the men come back in their canoes, uh, she didn't see her lover. And then she had a vision of what had happened to him. He was tied to a tree with an arrow through his heart. And then she saw his ghost in the air off the edge of this bluff beckoning to her. And she went to him right off the edge of the bluff and to her apparent death. But Maybe her spirit and his spirit are off in the air somewhere. Let's let's go with that. That's that's what happened, I think. 
Another formation that we have is uh, Devil's Kitchen, which just sounds great. Um, I'd eat there. <laughs> sounds like a, a great restaurant. As I was telling my friend about it today, I said, oh, yeah, and then there's Hell's Kitchen. Nope, that's that's not that is not what this is called. Um, she said, right. well, I'd go there if Gordon Ramsay was there. <laughs> but no, Devil's Kitchen. And if you like bike around the island um, or even just just take a walk sort of would that be northwestward kind of from downtown um so so that direction it's a circle you can't mess that up <laughs> um don't head towards mission point and you'll be fine um you can actually see it there's a sign um i'm noting that 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 that, that is devil's kitchen there and it is a limestone cave uh like skull cave and it looks like a face with an open mouth kind of so according to author Dirk Gringus in his book, Lore of the Turtle, which was published by the Mackinac State Historic Parks in 1970, Native Americans believed that evil spirits or in some other tellings, giants called Red Jeebies inhabited the cave and would consume people who got too close. And they say that there are dark markings in the mouth of this cave that look like soot from the cooking fires of yeah. these cannibal giants, which is... <laughs> Which is really cool. Uh, and there's also, you know, very <laughs> famous, um, famous formations like Arch Rock, which uh, Tocqueville mentioned in his uh, his journey memoir <laughs> of his journey across America. And that was formed when the master of life was so angry at an Ottawa chief that he caused the sun to turn blood red and crash into the earth, making this hole in the rock and sort of changed the very way, the very path of the sun from the night to the day. So that's how we got that. And then um, finally, we want to mention Sugarloaf. Um, it is a very tall vertical limestone structure and sort of in the center-ish of the island. You got to walk around some trails to, to get up there. It's said to be the dwelling of Gitchi Manitou, the great spirit. But there's also another telling, which was recorded by um, our friend Dirk again. <laughs> and in, in this book, Lore of the Turtle, um, he said that the rock was created by Manabozo or in some in some Anishinaabek um, and Potawatomi uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Translations, it's Nanabozo. So I've seen it both with the M and the N. And he serves a lot of different purposes in storytelling. He's kind of first man. He's learning different things. He serves as a trickster figure sometimes. And that's kind of what makes sense for this story. Um, but in the story, he has kind of gone to retire to Mackinac Island after his life of being first man. And 10 young men um, were trying to find him, hoping that they would grant his, their wishes. And after many months, the men arrived at the island that looked like a sleeping turtle and they found him there in the form of, of an old man. So then the young men ask, uh, ask Manabozo to grant their wishes, and he grants many of them. They were desiring skills like to be a better dancer, a greater storyteller, amazing hunter, or for a position of authority. All of these wishes were granted, but then the last man approaches him, and he asks for eternal life. And Manabozo becomes angry at the request, for it's the one gift that no mortal can have. That is something that is reserved for the gods. And uh, Manabozo pointed his pipe at the presumptuous young man, and he suddenly began to grow, and his features turned into the towering sugar loaf where he remains to this day. And and I will say that if you go there, please don't try to climb on Sugarloaf. These are um, wonderful natural features that are there. All of these features, and um, they will stay as you know. I mean, as long as we don't tear them down and ruin them by trying to get pictures and climb and throw rocks and pick things off of them. So admire Sugarloaf. <laughs> 
please don't. Yeah. Cry. And this limestone is particularly fragile. Um, mm-hmm. I know there's yes. a lot of concerns about how much longer Arch Rock is going to be with us. And I know oh, also with yeah. Sugarloaf, that Sugarloaf is 75 feet tall. And I know a couple of yeah. times while I was there, people, especially little kids, climbed it or attempted to climb it and couldn't get down. And, and the fire department oh. had to get involved. So, oh. um, so another reason to just not, it, there, many of these limestone formations are very tall. Many of them extend out over bluffs and it's just be safe and, mm-hmm. and don't leave them for generations to come. Yes. Yeah. We'll probably set, put some pictures <laughs> out on social media um, of some of these features. And if you look at it, like yeah. you say, it's sort of a fragile kind of limestone. When you look at it, it, it doesn't look like the limestone you think of from a quarry or something. It, it looks almost like almost like coral in, in yeah, some it's like, ways. Yeah, it's almost it, like a pudding stone yeah. in the way that they, it comes together. Yeah, yeah it, it, doesn't, it doesn't look like it should support too many people climbing on it. Well, and when I was reading about like the, the geology of, of the area, you know, it was when sort of there was more water. And so the island was actually covered. And so it's as the, the Great Lake, which are not the Great Lakes we have today, but as that sort of receded and water levels went down, that's how the island itself, but also many of these foundations came came to, to be formations that we can now see today. And, and so they were created by erosion <laughs> and mm-hmm. therefore are still susceptible to erosion. So let's not make people erosion. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that tears them down. <laughs> yes. But one thing I found interesting when when looking at some of these different Native American legends and one things that I one thing I always want to be cautious of and so I wondered what you guys thought about it too is this idea of of these non-indigenous folks um you know we had the Skinner fellow Henry Roll Schoolcraft is also a famous individual who wrote down um a lot of these different Ojibwe legends and things I know that Dirk Gringus um relied on some of his legends Schoolcraft's legends in retelling these legends we always have to be careful, I think, when we're taking an outsider perspective on these legends and not, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but <laughs> you're nodding. So I know you know what I'm trying yeah, to say. Totally. <laughs> I mean, Mackinac is so incredibly important to the indigenous people of the Great Lakes. There's a lot of creation stories that center on Mackinac. Um, I've heard some stories where Arch Rock is the, the bridge between worlds. Um, so it's mm-hmm. just a place that I think well before European contact has been invested with a lot of spiritual energy and um, that in many ways has been exploited for non-indigenous profits, especially mm-hmm. when you look at the history of tourism on yes. Mackinac. I, I just think that's important to be careful about, you know, I mean, Henry Rose Schoolcraft did live on the Island for a long time. He was very, mm-hmm. at, when he was serving as the Indian agent for the Mackinac region, um, he uh, was diligent by 19th century standards at collecting a lot of this information, (laughs) but by 19th century standards, you know, Um, and a lot of the information that Schoolcraft collects and publishes is really coming from his wife, Jane and Jane Johnston Mm -hmm. Schoolcraft. She's uh, her mother's side of the family was a very powerful Ojibwe family from the Sault Ste. Marie area. And um, she was a very accomplished oral historian and poet in her own right. And much of what, Schoolcraft is publishing is really his wife's incredible wealth of knowledge and her incredible mm-hmm. storytelling and and poetic ability, um, and a lot of that has been recovered and published under Jane's name since. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge where where this information is coming from and who is who's making mm-hmm. the money off of it, especially. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I wanted to, to sort of mention is, is Skinner, who who where I found that um, Lover's Leap 
thing. He he wrote a nine volume mm-hmm. collection of stories of our land and then stories of our new land about, you know, folklore from after the Spanish American war, he, you know, collected uh, folk stories from the Philippines and, and, and Cuba and talk about commercial motivations for this. There's also some sort of, in a way, cultural and ideological motivations as well. Cause Skinner had this, mm-hmm. this goal of as America grew and as America sort of, had some founding myths of its own and he had Paul Bunyan and Johnny Appleseed. He wanted to create sort of an American sort of monomyth out of or a collection of, of all American myths. So it, in a way he was attempting to fold some of these native myths into kind of a generic mm-hmm. American myth. But what's interesting is it's not in a chapter about Mackinac or about the Great Lakes. It's in a chapter about lovers leap stories. So it, it's, it's sort of divorced from the culture from which it came, it becomes a generic story about Indians and Indian mythology, which is sort of a an endemic issue when dealing with with Native American stuff. Is is, is you know tribal divisions and, and differences and, and distinctions get broken down, and just all just becomes in quotes an Indian thing. Well, yeah, even the stories that these legends, if you will, about about these formations that we just shared. First of all, they don't always say like, this was an Ojibwe legend, or this was an Ottawa legend, or, or whatever. So it's just Native American, which assumes that they're a homogeneous group, which they're not. And so there, there are multiple stories about all of these different places. And we're just sharing the ones that were, were promoted the most, um, a lot of them from the Mackinac Island Tourism Bureau's <laughs> um, website. Um, but but that doesn't mean that that's the only, that's the definitive end. Oral traditions are rich and change between group and even family. And and so um, the, na- the nature of, of tale of legend is, you know, hard to pin down. So just keep that in mind <laughs> as you as you think about the stories that we just shared. <laughs> and I think this is a good point to take a little break. Next time, the Circleville Letters. You can subscribe to Great Lakes Lore at greatlakeslore.com or wherever you find podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Great Lakes Lore. The links are in the show notes. And um, wherever you listen, give us, a, give us a rating or a review if possible. That really helps in the, in the inner workings of the interweb systems. It's, it's, it's all magic. <laughs> it is. <laughs> And by the time you're listening to this, or within hours of you listening to this, um, the <laughs> Shizo Media Patreon should be live with bonus material available from Great Lakes Lore and The Saucer Life. And um, we're going to have all sorts of information on social media about what kinds of extra content will be available there for you. But be sure to check that out at patreon.com slash Shizo Media or check out the link in the show notes. We'd love to get your comments and questions about this episode, so reach out to us on social media or in email. You can count on any of the numerous posts that go out wherever you follow us. And um, I know we promised you last time that during our midway break, we are going to talk about the books that we're reading for the Astonishing Legends Book Challenge. Um, but this is a very long episode. <laughs> we have a very long outline to work through. <laughs> and so um, we are actually going to record a little something separate and release it uh, where Aaron and I will talk about the books that we read for January. Yes. And I think it's high time we get back to the island. So now we're going to talk about um, a, a location on the island, and um, it has 
quite a history attached to it. This type of building you find um, throughout the United States. And the unfortunate fact of the matter is that though the island had an important and revered place in the indigenous cultures of the region, once Europeans began moving in and battling over the land, the Native Americans were used as pawns in their wars. Then after the War of 1812, they were a population that needed to be managed, according to these Europeans. And part of that came through work to um, basically wipe out their culture, civilize them, make them more like these Euro- the European cultures that, that were coming into, into the um, this part of the world. And so in 1825, the Mission House was constructed on Mackinac Island, and it served as a boarding school for Native American children. Now, these kinds of boarding houses uh, or boarding schools were an unfortunate staple, if you will, in the awful plans for Americans to manage and sort of wipe out Native culture. Children were ripped from their homes. Parents were kept away from them. They cut their hair. They weren't allowed to speak their languages. And these boarding schools are the reason behind the loss of many Indigenous languages. So roughly 500 students attended the school um, during the about a decade that it was open, and um, 16 of those students did end up passing away while they were at the school. So there are many stories circulating on the internet with regard to the poor treatment and subsequent deaths of students at the school, uh, especially those who came down with tuberculosis. And all these sources report that the students were brought to the cool basement where it was thought the cool air would help them um, help treat the tuberculosis or relieve their, uh, their illness. Today, the school is referred to as being one of the most haunted buildings on the island with apparitions of children and cries and screams. Regardless of whether or not the school is truly haunted in the way popular culture has taught us to think of hauntings, it has an incredibly haunting history that shouldn't be overlooked, not for its shock value, but for the trauma held within its walls and how schools like this harmed indigenous peoples throughout the country. In the late 1830s, the school closed and was sold, becoming a hotel. It had a few different iterations as such. And then in 1946, it was purchased and used as a conference center for the Moral Rearmament Movement, which will be discussed further when Mission Point Resort is uh, is talked about. In the 1960s, the building had a short stint as a liberal arts college, which failed. And in the 1970s, it was purchased by the Mackinac State Historic Parks. Yeah, and now today it is the living quarters for the seasonal staff for Mackinac State Historic Parks, which means that this is the building that I lived in uh, for all the time that I was living on Mackinac Island. So I'm very well acquainted with Mission House and its many stories, <laughs> for sure. All right. Are there any you'd like to to share or, or tell us a little bit about? This is another situation where I never personally experienced anything at the Mission House, um, but I lived on the third floor uh, all five years that I was there. Um, the third floor was added as part of its conversion into a hotel in 1841. And so I, I never knew anyone who had any experiences on the third floor. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, you know, it's the equivalent of like haunting a La Quinta. It, I mean, no one wants to, <laughs> if I die in a hotel, I'm not sticking around. Um, but for, for friends who uh, were living in the, the floors and the parts of the building that were an active part of the residential school, 
um, it was a very active place where my friends were constantly um, complaining of paranormal activity, disturbing them in their sleep. My friend Joe was particularly shaken um, one morning, waking up and finding on the single pane glass in his, in his room children's handprints. No, yeah, he still talks about that as being uh, something that shook him up quite badly. On the east wing of the home, which was especially in the second floor area, which is where like my kitchen was, and then a couple of my friends had bedrooms. Um, people would r- routinely say that they were seeing children there. There was a little boy that people often saw. There was a lot of stories about a little boy with a red ball, but I think they're confusing. I think that's a leftover from the movie Somewhere in Time, which was filmed on the <laughs> island. I yep. don't think that's actually <laughs> yeah. connected to the um, to the school. And then on the the west wing of the building, which is was uh, the building was separated at least when I lived there. Um, into men, a men's side and a women's side. And on the men's side of the home, that was where the instructors, where the missionaries and the teachers themselves were living. And those people on, on the women's side of the building, my friends would report seeing kids or handprints and things like that. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't anything that ever felt malevolent. Um, like I had a friend who her stuff would just get moved all the time during the night. Mm-hmm. Her alarm clock would get shut on and off. And one night we all fortified ourselves with quite a bit of tequila and went in and had very curt words with this young man about how you're not to, you're not to move things anymore. And, and it stopped. <laughs> um, so it was it was very, at least in the east wing of the building, it was quite mischievous in nature. Um, but on the west wing of the building where the adults had been living historically during the time that it was a school the stories that my friends had were a little bit more sinister. Mm. Um, I remember my friend John saying multiple times that he would wake up to feeling like someone was sitting on his bed, Ooh. not on your chest, like a sleep paralysis thing, but yeah. then someone had sat on his bed. Um, and several friends report seeing shadows of men. Um, they could tell that they were men from the hats that they were wearing <laughs> on the walls of the, of the building in the kitchen. Um, which was the uh, the fairies, the Reverend and uh, William mm-hmm. and his wife Amanda. It was their quarters in th- in that area or on the porch. They would see kind of this malevolent shadow of a male figure. And then for a lot of my friends who lived in what had kind of been the dormitory area of the building, um, there was just kind of like this unspoken agreement that you didn't leave your room at night. Like no matter how badly you had to use the restroom, you didn't you did not go down the hall you did not open your door that there was just um a real squeaky feeling uh in that hallway in the night so you know nothing other than i would say the stuff moving and my friend joe's uh handprints on the windows which he did call me in and i did see and were quite uh vivid um there wasn't anything too concrete but it was definitely a building that you were always very aware of its history in Mm -hmm. so and it was especially remarkable we because of the nature of the stories that we were interpreting, we always had Native American interpreters um, who that was their specific job. I mean, I had a lot of friends mm-hmm. working for the parks who were also of indigenous ancestry from that area. And then we also had people who were employed specifically to interpret indigenous history and indigenous history alone. And I knew people who had gone to residential schools in Harbor Springs, the residential school in Harbor Springs, Michigan, Holy Child of Jesus, into the 1980s. Oh, you know, yeah. That school yeah, closed in 1986. <laughs> Yeah, and so to to know that you had friends who had experienced mm-hmm. a residential school and that you were living in a very early example of a residential mm-hmm. school um, that was omnipresent, whether you were experiencing paranormal phenomenon or not, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, let's move on a little bit then. Um, we'd have um, a bit of uh, tourism to talk about now at this point. And we're going to start with Mission Point Hotel because it's uh, Mission Point Resort because its history is tied directly to um, to the Mission House, which we were just talking about. And so after the Civil War, uh, tourism to Mackinac Island really started to pick up. And then by the late 1800s, you know, it's it's a tourist hotspot for sure. So Mission Point Resort is is one place that I had always heard a very specific story about. Um, but first, I'll give you a little bit of history. So keep the Mission House in mind. Um, in 1946, the Moral Rearmament Movement acquired the Mission House, uh, what was the boarding school, no longer a boarding school. And this was a movement that had begun in England in 1938, basing their mission in the idea that arming yourselves morally would help to solve the problems of the world. So 1938, this is, um, you know, the years leading up to and and things are starting to really take shape uh, for for World War Two. So so Europe is in 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 a state that the United States is not <laughs> um, thinking about quite yet at that moment. But but the movement starts there and they had already been utilizing the Island House Hotel for conferences immediately following World War Two. But in 1946, they set about creating their own center. So in the 1950s, more buildings were constructed in addition to the Mission House, and including a theater and soundstage at which they produced even their own motion pictures. And a few of the titles I found listed were The Crowning Experience, Voice of the Hurricane, and Decision at Midnight. I've never seen any of these. No idea what, what exactly they are. <laughs> I just I was fascinated by just this idea of the moral rearmament movement. And I sort of was Googling it earlier today, and Glenn Close was raised oh. in it. Yeah, she speaks of it very negatively as it being a very, very negative experience. Yeah. All right. So by the mid 1960s, the movement decided to ditch its island properties and deemed them to Mackinac College, which was supposed to be a, a liberal arts college and um, located on Mackinac Island. It surprisingly failed. So surprising. <laughs> um, so the buildings that had been constructed then operated as a religious retreat center and educational institution, which also sounds vaguely unsettling. Mm -hmm. And um, by 1972, it was transformed into a resort. And so the one ghost story that I had heard about Mission Point and um, actually saw a Ghost Hunters episode where they they talk about this ghost um, is, is a young man named Harvey. And it is said that Harvey was at the resort while it was um, I, I couldn't find for sure whether it was the college or the religious center. Um, not a little vague there. Um, and he was so brokenhearted that a woman did not return his affections that he went into the woods behind the resort and, um, and he shot himself. Um, his body wasn't found for six months. And there are rumors that were started by a certain somebody that we're going to talk a little bit about at the, at the end of this episode, <laughs> um, that it wasn't suicide because two bullet holes were found in his head and there was no gun nearby. Um, it is said that Harvey still haunts the resort and the theater in particular. An article I found online by a former seasonal employee who um, had another job actually working at the Ford, it seemed, and then also gave some of these ghost tours for the haunts of Mackinac ghost 
tours, said that she had an encounter with Harvey. She said that on one tour, her group was in the theater at Mission Point, and she heard a dragging sound behind the curtain. She thought it was her fellow guide trying to freak her out, and she called out for him to, to stop. And she heard his voice from another direction saying, I don't, what are you talking about? I'm not doing anything. Mm. And so they were like, Oh, what was it? So they um, threw back the curtain and turned on the light and there was nobody back there. Just the chair sitting there, which she presumes she heard being drug across the floor. Um, now, in the episode of Ghost Hunters that I watched, this was many years ago, I will say, and I subscribe to no streaming service that provides me access <laughs> to Ghost Hunters back episodes right now. Um, I believe that they tried doing some historical research and found no actual record of anybody named Harvey because in these stories, he's never given a last name. And I did a little bit of research myself on newspapers.com and also with combinations of search things like Mission Point Resort and Harvey and suicide and murder, like nothing, nothing was was coming up. So I know, Claire, when you quick glanced at the uh, at the outline, you had some thoughts on this, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had never heard this particular story before. And it just, you know, there's only been one, uh, at least in the 20th century, only one murder on Mackinac that gets talked about. Um, a tourist was um, assaulted and murdered on the island. Uh, and the murderer never caught. Um, mm -hmm. And that story gets so much kind of press and is so well known, at least among staff mm -hmm. members and, and, and park employees that I just thought like, God, I would, I would have heard <laughs> about this that I would have, and especially I lived next door for, right. for years. I would have heard <laughs> about this. So, um, you know, I have friends who, who were part of the only graduating class at Mackinac college and, and no the mission point campus very well so i was like i, I swear i would have heard something like this so it just seems a little mm -hmm. a little far-fetched i was gonna say it's, it's a small place it's something like yes. this everybody would know about it yeah. and everybody would be talking about it for forever yeah and in my theory as as you'll see when i talk about a story in a few seconds um is that if a bunch of drunk college kids weren't spreading the story around then it didn't happen <laughs> There's no yeah. way that it could have existed because um, when you get all of those, uh, the Ford employees, all the seasonal employees for the fudge shops, the coffee shops, um, the hotels, all of restaurants, the carriage tour drivers who are known to make up stories from what I've been told. Um, yes. <laughs> they are storytellers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, if we would have heard about it. <laughs> Yeah, and there's also some stories about the Grand Hotel, and the, if, if no matter where you are in this world, if you know anything about Mackinac Island, <laughs> you might know about the Grand Hotel. If you are of a certain age or you like movies, you have seen it in Somewhere in Time. As Claire mentioned, the, the film before, Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. I had to watch it in my high school history class because my teacher <laughs> liked it. So we watched Somewhere in Time. I've never actually seen it. <laughs> How do you ruin... How do you ruin Superman and time travel? It is schmaltzy. Oh. <laughs> it's not good. The Grand Hotel was this, this, this sort of Gilded Age symbol of excess. It opened in 1887, and you can actually see the hotel from the shores of the lower peninsula of Michigan. Looking out over the straits to the island, you can actually see the hotel. It's got a front porch that is 600 feet long, which is one of the things it's known for. And if you want more information about it, you can go to historichotels.org, and they will tell you everything you need to know. It's a long history they've got on there. 
Lots of architectural stuff I kind of glazed over. <laughs> yeah. If, if that's your thing, knock yes. yourself out. But um, we're here for ghosts. So there are stories <laughs> that when the hotel was built, so many skeletons were found during the building process that the builders couldn't keep track and they continued building. And I had a question about this. Where were they finding these? Was this in the ground they were finding them or? I don't know. There's, there's just not that much topsoil on the island is the problem. Yeah. Is that they've always struggled to bury people on the island. Um, and also where the Grand Hotel was, there's been a lot of different things. It was pasture land for a long time. There was a distillery there at one point during the War of 1812 where all the townspeople hid out while the British attacked. Um, so, I mean, the idea that we would go until 1887 and not have that land disturbed uh, and have a massive burial ground discovered is, is hard to believe. Yeah, I, I was just I was I was looking at this and I was thinking about the, the geology of the island. I was like so many skeletons they couldn't keep count. It just sounds this like is a co- yeah. this is a common story, though, because so when the summer that I worked on the island, um, I mentioned that I worked for Starbucks and um, it, it was a renovation of a previous downtown business. I, f- I forget what it what it was before that. Um, and so they had to redo a bunch of stuff and, you know, redoing in the basement and stuff. And we, I don't know. I don't know where the story came from. Who told it? They're like, "Oh yeah, I heard that they found bones down there and didn't actually report it and just kept building." So it is a very common, and I think it's just because it's like, well, there were Native Americans here, and there was war here, and there was this here, so there are clearly bones everywhere on the island. Um, and, then, and then, meanwhile, while all of that is like this kind of repetitive, oldie timey, there's got to be bones in the ground kind of story. <laughs> just down the street, it did actually happen. Uh, when McNally, McNally Cottage was torn down to create, I believe, where is now the Bicycle Inn, mm. all of us at the state park were like, they're going to find bones there because that's where the Catholic Church was originally and where the oh. original Catholic cemetery was before it was moved up to its mm-hmm. current location when the church was moved. And all of us at the state park were like, they're going to find bones. They're going to find bones. Gonna, and then what do you know? They found bones. So <laughs> it's like, it it does happen, but there's a reason for it it's not just kind of this like right. generic oldy timey the <laughs> indians there's yeah bones. right you know it just feels like such a a, a myth of of mm-hmm. pseudo history that yeah. comes up oh, again, for and sure. again and again yeah we, we've disturbed the ancient burial ground yes and, and exactly. now bad things yeah. are gonna happen very poltergeist yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that's the movie i was thinking of. yes yeah <laughs> Yeah. So, so yeah, it, it just when I when I read that, I was like, you know, I, it sounds like those one of the, one of those things that they say in order to yeah. set up the ghost story they're going to tell in yes. about forty five minutes. <laughs> you know, so it was probably the carriage tour drivers that made that up. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. They're in it for tips, and I don't blame yeah. them. So. <laughs> so there's also stories of uh, people at the hotel seeing entities in period clothing. Um, I presume that's Gilded Age period clothing. Probably it's one of those phrases that you read, and it's like, oh yeah, which which period? Uh, I will what say that the website I said 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 Victorian clo- Victorian era clothing, and oh, I we're got not angry. Say that here. So. No. <laughs> No, that's wrong. <laughs> I changed it to period clothing. <laughs> period. Cl- I just wanted to, to clarify the period. But also, why couldn't there be a flapper? Why couldn't there right. be a flapper ghost? 
Yeah. Exactly. I would love to it's, meet a flapper ghost. Or from the 80s. I mean, it's yeah. been a hotel for over 100 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you see you see people in, in double-knit polyester and bell-bottoms and, and wide Truly collars. terrifying. Yeah, it Truly would be. terrifying. It really, it really a disco Mackinac. Yeah, it, it would be deeply A bunch troubling. of 1950s drunk yachtmen. <laughs> Bingo. Yes. Yeah. Apparently I, ghosts can only exist from the 19th and early 20th yes. centuries. They have to be from that period. I, I yes. want to see some beatnik ghosts. That, that's yes. All I well, really they, they couldn't say. be at the hotel, though. No. They, well, they, they, they'd be there, then get kicked out, and then come back right. later. So there, there's one report that a group of maintenance workers saw a, a large dark entity with, with glowing red eyes, and the entity rushed at one of them and knocked him out, and he ended up going to the hospital. This sounds very, very strange. And I just love that it's a glowing eyed entity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the story. Claire, have you, have you heard have you heard about that one? No, I haven't heard that one. I do have a, a friend of mine, um, a former state park employee who for um, a couple of years, right around the time that I left the park, was actually the um, winter watchman for the Grand Hotel. So he was the on site security for the winter. It's very Stephen King. <laughs> He said it was very shining esque. Yeah, he was like it was it was very. He felt like Jack Nicholson, but um, and he's the kind of person where if if there had been red glowing eyes, I would have heard about it immediately okay. from this person. And he had nothing to report other than a general sense of creepiness. So. There's other reports. Uh, I like this one. There's a man in the piano bar wearing a top hat, uh, often accompanied by the smell of cigar <laughs> smoke. So that's a nice sort of multi sensory uh, paranormal yeah. experience. That does just happen with living people, though. I mean, in the, in the piano bar, which is also a cigar <laughs> bar. So this, that could be just a living person in the corner with a top hat. I mean, I'm sure that the walls and the furniture, everything's absorbed so much smell that yes. a muggy day happens. And it's just like, it's a time when smoking yeah. was allowed everywhere again. <laughs> so there's some interesting stories on Mackinac Island. But there's also some stories that, uh, as, as you might have heard and, and picked up on so far, there's some, some, some things you have to be wary of when looking at these stories. Yeah, so when I was doing my research, I came across the story of the drowning pool, and this was something I had never, never heard of before. And the story goes um, that in the 1700s and early 1800s, and that's how it's written every single time, <laughs> It is. I found the story. Um, seven women were accused of being witches and drowned in a pool of water just inland from the straits in front of Mission Point Resort. So if you f- you're familiar with the island and you're walking down sort of the, the main road towards Mission Point Resort, there's a point where you can veer off to what would be your right and you can take a little bicycle trail that goes closer to the water. And um, there is sort of this little, I don't know my geology terms, a lagoon, an estuary, a, a puddle of water that is large and deep. I, <laughs> I'm not sure what word would be the most appropriate for this. I like lagoon. Yeah, I, I do too. Maybe there's a mermaid inside. Um, and, and so there were these, uh, women who were accused of being witches. And so they needed to be tested to see if they were witches. So they were going to dunk them. And, you know, if they survived the dunking, they were witches. If they died, they weren't, but whoops. Um, and, uh, as I mentioned, it's a story I never heard of. Um, it wasn't part of the carriage tours. Um, nothing was shared between us college folks <laughs> on the island for a long summer where you're secluded from everybody and stories get told. <laughs> um, and I even came across um, some other stories that said that this pool was actually a 20th century creation. Something that I read said it was one of the more recent owners of the Mission Point Resort who, when doing work, they, this pool ended up being created 
created. Something else I read said it was the Moral Rearmament Act had used that area as like a marina. And so they kind of had had altered that landscape there a bit, but definitely didn't exist prior to 1900. Um, and, and so this raised all of my history hackles. <laughs> and <laughs> so um, every iteration of the story that I found online, and it was largely being shared by um, radio stations, newspapers, news stations, things like that. Um, and then other just general haunted places in the state kind of sites. They all pointed back to Todd Clements, who was the author of Haunts of Mackinac and the owner of the Haunts of Mackinac Tours. And um, nothing beyond this. And so it appears that the story originated with him. Um, the wording, as I mentioned, is the same in every way it's told. It says 1700s and early 1800s, which is very weirdly, mm -hmm. it's not, it's very weirdly unspecific, I guess, is, is what I what I feel. And again, it said these women worked at the brothels that were in the town. And, you know, in order to sort of weed out some of this bad activity, um, they thought, let's accuse them of witchcraft and, and drown them. Um, and, you know, as I said, and that, that would be so remarkable for the 18th and 19th centuries, yes. especially in this area, to hear accusations of witchcraft. Yeah. That would be so yes. remarkable that I think some some historian yeah. would have seized on that by now if it yes. had an iota. <laughs> We'd all be sharing the stories of the witches of Mackinac Island. Were it right. Exactly. And, and, and the, the water test thing is such a European thing yes. rather yeah. than a North American thing. It's, it's histor history-ish. Right. It mm -hmm. sounds like yeah. it could be a real right. historical story because, well, there were witches and witchcraft and witch hunts in Salem and witch trials throughout New England and, you know, in other states as well during the 1690s. So it's just 100 <laughs> years later and it's all it's all the olden days. So, yeah, exactly. you know, why wouldn't this have happened here? And all of these articles also shared the very same picture of of the of the dunking, you know, like the same exact old <laughs> black and white sketch. But there's like no source or anything so as like a reader yeah. who doesn't know history though they would read that and think whoa this actually came from Mackinac yep. island you know and oh, yeah. it just it makes yeah, and that's what so exactly bad. what i was gonna say too is that it just those kinds of stories feel like they're preying mm -hmm. on people's lack of familiarity yes. with the past and I really do mean praying. I mean, it's it feels very exploitative because it's usually for cash. Mm -hmm. It's usually for a tour or a book or yes. um, something like that. So it does feel extremely exploitative of saying, you know, you're not a historian. You maybe haven't had a history class in a long time, but you know, generic old timey things. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm gonna exploit that and make a buck off it. And it, I, I it just feels icky. It's very yeah. Icky. And it's I mean, not to generalize. But the paranormal field is a massive grift, <laughs> and I, I I say that with affection. But you know, it always has been. It's yes, very historically oh accurate. Yes. <laughs> it, it's 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 always it always has been. Sam, what you're talking about with these these stories are on all these websites, sort of word for word. I mean, I'm not sort of saying this is what it was, but it sounds like. Sounds like somebody's sending out a press release. It, yeah. You know, it, it, it sounds Or it they sounds did their like own the Google search of, oh, it's Halloween time. I need to make an, an article yeah. for our, our news station website about haunted places. Ooh, witches in Michigan. That'll get attention. Yep. yep. <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, I, so I was listening to a podcast um, the last couple days. It's um, called Haunt, Haunted Road, and it's hosted by Amy Bruni, who was yes. a member of Ghost Hunter or a crew member for the, the TAPS team, the Ghost Hunter folk 
folks um, back a long time ago. And I know she has another TV show right now. I don't get that channel. (laughs) Um, But so I was listening to the podcast, though, and she was interviewing the current owners of The Conjuring House. And, you know, they were talking about how essentially the same thing has happened with, um, you know, some of the characters who've been associated as the evil characters inside of the house, The Conjuring House. Um, And that when you go to the actual historical records, like that's, that's just not the case. But everybody thinks that Bathsheba is like the the evil lady who killed a baby or, or whatever it is. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think there are people who are doing good work in trying to share what the true story is. And I like to think that as us historians who are also interested in this stuff, we're, we're kind of doing the same thing as well. And I know, Claire, you had a specific story that has been um, – it's sort of the thing that raises your historian hackles of <laughs> a Mackinac Island one. Yeah. So um, it was something I wasn't familiar with. So if you want to share that. Yeah. And, and in, in fairness, I, I don't know that I ever really heard it in person. Um, I, I heard, oh, I heard it once in person that I can confirm. And so I don't know how long it kind of propagated, but, um, and it was on Todd Clements haunts of Mackinac tour. Full disclosure. I don't know Todd very well. We've <laughs> met at a couple of parties. We have mutual friends. Um, and a lot of my friends worked for him part-time mm-hmm. in addition to working for the state park and had really good experiences with him as a boss. So I don't in any way, shape or form mean this as any sort of personal indictment, but I do know that there was one particular story that was told on the haunts of Mackinac tour that I found really deeply disturbing. And it was a story about Magdalene Laframboise. And if you're not familiar with this woman, Google her immediately. She's the coolest. <laughs> She's just the coolest, like top of my list of like Michigan women to know. Um, she was a Métis woman of mixed uh, French and Odawa descent. Uh, she married a French fur trader, Joseph Laframboise. They had two children. And uh, while their children were still very, very small, her husband was killed, uh, allegedly murdered. They had a trading post near the Grand River uh, in the Lower Peninsula during the winter. And then they would come up to Mackinac in the summer. And when her husband was murdered uh, in the early 19th century, she took over his trade and kind of built it into a quite impressive trading company um, that I think gave the American Fur Company on Mackinac a little run for its money, at least made them a little bit nervous. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she had this very large and impressive home, which today is the kind of offices and lobby area of uh, a hotel on the island, um, which I always made my parents stay at because I just wanted to be in the hotel and be in her <laughs> house. Um, and uh, which is right next to the Catholic church on the island because she is the one when the Catholic church outgrew its uh, original building, she was the one who donated the the land for the new construction. Uh, Her daughter married the commandant of Fort Mackinac, Benjamin Pierce, who was the brother of president Franklin Pierce. She was very well connected. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's just an amazing, amazing woman. And after her death, uh, she was given uh, a very important burial within St. Anne's Church. And when the church was remodeled in the 1870s, her burial was moved initially to kind of the um, front art yard garden area of the church. And now she, uh, you can visit her burial site. She's been moved again into the church's museum area in the basement. But one of the stories that I heard uh, early on in the Haunts of Mackinac tours was that her body during the um, renovation of the church had been misplaced or uncovered and that no one knew what these bones were. And so her bones were strung up as a Halloween skeleton decoration. Oh. And I just found that to be 
I mean, A, deeply untrue. Her, her burial has always been given a place of pride and respect in acknowledgement of her contributions. Um, but also really, I think, disturbing given the fact that she is a, a, a woman of Odawa ancestry, given what we understand about the history of the treatment of indigenous people's bodies mm-hmm. and graves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I just found that whole story to be deeply disturbing and disrespectful and ignored uh, an opportunity to tell a really amazing story of a really amazing woman. You know, my fear was that people are leaving Mackinac and the only time they hear Magdalene Laframboise's name mm-hmm. is in the context of this fake story. Um, I don't know how long that story was told as part of the tour. I don't know if it still is. I've no, I don't know, but um, I found that to be deeply disturbing. Yeah. So there are other, um, just some inaccuracies. I mean, cause the, the thing that I also find troubling, I guess, just to use that word again, is these these paranormal groups who will go in and they'll do their own investigation or whatever, and then they'll come back and they'll share their findings online. But then the history isn't accurate there either. So um, I'm not going to go through the, like the list of items that I found. Um, but, you know, Haunted Travels of Michigan, they had some things confused, timeline things. Um, there's a, AroundMichigan.com had some weird phrases and and just some generalizations in this list of 51 haunted places that they had. And so these are the things that, you know, I mean, I like creepy history. When I went to Charleston, I did a, a pirate ghost walking tour because you're in Charleston. So like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. a fun thing to do, right? Um, and so, you know, as a person who likes to engage in some of this, um, you know, we had the conversation about dark tourism versus haunted tourism mm-hmm. in one of our previous episodes. But but if if that's something that that you enjoy learning about um, because of the history involved in it and, you know, wondering about the afterlife, whatever it might be, um, you know, you're going to find these inaccuracies all over the web. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it's just as, as a historian, it's just so upsetting because it's not that hard to find the correct information. A lot of the no. things that we shared with you in this episode, we found actually from the Mackinac State Historic Parks website and the Mackinac Island Tourism Bureau's website. They have an incredible website that's filled with information about the various historical buildings, um, residents of the island, things to do, the history of the island itself, the fort. I mean, all kinds of things can so easily be found on those reputable websites that it's like, Why'd you mess this up here, though? <laughs> you know, so yeah. and and so many publications. I mean, especially a place like Mackinac or a place like Charleston. I mean, these are places that have enormous historical significance, mm-hmm. and so they're certainly written about and researched about. And there's so many. I mean, I just pulled like a handful of books off my shelf <laughs> to double check things for myself tonight. And it's just there's no there's no end to the information that is available mm-hmm. publicly and very very easily. So when you see mistakes like that you start to wonder if they're mistakes it is really kind of the, the feeling I get, which right. is what I think feels icky. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's disingenuous in a lot of cases. It's, I'm not sure this is the best word for it, but I think there's a lot of laziness involved. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's like, um, you know, just, just things like things being in the wrong place or yes. timelines <laughs> being out of order. Nobody's going to check this. I don't care. People are reading this for a ghost story. They're not reading it for history. So it doesn't matter if I get the order of these things wrong or I put something in the wrong place or I describe a geographical location that doesn't actually exist um, in the way that everybody else thinks it does. Um, it, it doesn't matter because 
who cares? That's irritating because people read these things, I think, thinking they are getting sort of like, mm-hmm. well, I'm getting a ghost story, but I'm also learning about the history of Mackinac. And mm-hmm. did you know that, you know, blah, 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 10 things that are wrong? <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think the examples that we've talked about tonight from Mackinac to really show the danger of that, because I will put up with a certain amount of that when we're talking about a haunted hotel mm-hmm. and glowing red eyes and a man <laughs> sure. in a top hat. I will put up with a certain amount of that laziness if you get the year wrong and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But so many of the stories around Mackinac involve indigenous history. Mm-hmm. So much of the spookiness is kind of from that, you know, an Indian burial ground or a residential school for indigenous children. And I just think there's so much of that kind of baked into a lot of myth-making and mm-hmm. narrative in American history yeah. that I think you have to be so careful with. And especially when we are talking about ghost stories or dark tourism, you want to make sure that you're not sensationalizing a history that is already factually very dark and very exploitative um, and th- make sure that you're not furthering that in a way that is really destructive. Yes. And sort of to, to sort of tag onto that, um, because you are dealing with with indigenous peoples and, and and places that are sacred to indigenous peoples, this um, inaccuracy, this this laziness, this this wrongness in the context of, of paranormal stories is another way that the paranormal field. I'm using sarcasm quotes. The, the, the paranormal <laughs> field is is sort of fairly exclusionary. You, mm-hmm. you look at you look at the names, you look at the people, you look at the personalities. It's demographically very homogenous. And so this is, I think, an example of another way that that the paranormal field is has has some work to do. Totally. Think about the stories that we shared that that had sort of the the, the messed up histories and stuff. They deal with Native American stories and with women. So mm-hmm. um, yep. it's uh there they are the others. And so there's an otherness about their stories that we can exploit that we can get some money off of because mainstream whoever is going to already have a little hint there that there's something creepy or could be unsettling or could be whatever. And so you're playing off of these stereotypes and um, prejudices that already exist. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think Mackinac too, on the flip side though, offers us such a great example of, um, what, what the opposite of like that of that would look like of what examining the paranormal or the supernatural or the spiritual from a historical perspective in good faith mm-hmm. can look like you know Mackinac has been a center of spirituality for thousands of mm-hmm. literally thousands of years there has been so much spiritual energy invested in this place um, from indigenous belief to you know a very very early French mission to this early 19th century war between the Protestant and Catholic <laughs> missionaries on the island. I mean, I think there is so much rich history and so many moments where people are experiencing the worst days of their life in a place like Mackinac. And I think there's so much opportunity to explore those ideas in a really healthy and historically accurate, but also curious way. Um, so I think Mackinac for me has always been an opportunity to, um, to examine those ideas in a, in a much more good faith approach too. So one final question that I had, because I had a whole list of sort of wrap up points, and I think we've slowly been sort of tackling them all without saying it, but um, it was something Claire and I were, were messaging back and forth earlier today, preparing for this. And um, she said something I found interesting and had never thought of before, but that when people are sort of 
making up or sensationalizing these stories, what effect does that have on folks who truly have experienced things? And so I wondered if you wanted to to say a little something about that. Well, I, I one of the things I noticed that, um, you know, when I was working for the state park at the time, again, this was over a decade ago, we introduced this tour called the Ghastly Mackinac Tour, which was our answer to the Haunts of Mackinac Tour. And it was a tour that was completely historically accurate, did not talk about ghosts, but talked about some really heavy subjects. And I, when we were developing that tour, among the staff members, there was just kind of always this fear of like, can I, can I come right out and say like, yeah, I saw a ghost there, you know? I mean, it, it was always this kind of like, am I a bad, am I a bad historian mm-hmm. if I say I had this experience or I had this feeling or this thing happened to me that I can't explain? Am I renouncing my professional credentials by saying that? And I think it's really important for us as public historians to be open to engaging with that. Again, you're going to have visitors come through who do believe in it. Mm-hmm. You're going to have visitors come through. Again, I was shocked at the number of visitors I've had in my career who are like, I'm here because I'm a medium and that's what I'm here for. Uh, and I want to share with you what I've heard. Or, you know, even even in a less kind of supernatural way, just the sheer number of museums I've worked in that have human remains in their mm-hmm. collection. Um, or, you know, when I left Mackinac, I went and did an internship with uh, the Little Traverse Bay Bands of Odawa Indians in their human remain repatriation mm. program. And so, I mean, you're, you're dealing with subjects that are going to bring up a lot of ideas about the paranormal, mm-hmm. about spirituality. And I think it has been helpful for me in, in situations where I've been on a staff that has made it a safe place mm-hmm. for us as museum professionals and public historians to say, if you've had this experience, you can talk about it. You know, um, the things that I did experience happened in a museum when we were open. And I was like, well, that just happened to me. And now I have to go do my job, you know, and I'm very unsettled right now. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that has been an important part of what has made me successful or unsuccessful in a job is how safe I felt in being able to explore some of those ideas that I believe are going to come up when you work in history. And I think, Having worked in his two different historic house museums, I mean, you're every day in a space where people lived, where people died, where they're, you know, where they were laid out um, for for their viewings or, or whatever. And um, and yeah, whether it's, you know, your own thoughts or things that happened, because I am confident <laughs> that things happened as well one time shortly before a program was supposed to happen as well. <laughs> um, and uh yeah, there's always that moment of like, well, if, if someone on a tour asks, though, what do I tell them, <laughs> you know, or, yeah. you know, where I cur- I was the director at my last house museum. Um, but where I currently work, I get people who ask me and I've never had weird feelings in this house or anything like that. But I always wonder, like, but but what if my boss found out and I told these people like some, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's so you just it makes you wonder. And um, it's something I think that we all should be able to grapple with and talk about. And um, yeah, so until you brought that up, I never really thought too hard about it. But I was like, this is this is an interesting point worth exploring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so my research, again, I'm just finishing up my dissertation as part of my PhD. And my research focuses on the issue of authenticity in living history interpretation. And I'm examining that both in, in the context of authenticity as historical accuracy, but also in the role that authenticity plays as an authentic human connection. Mm. 
and how important is that when it comes to history education and historic interpretation? And I think that that is part of having an authentic connection with a guest. Mm -hmm. If a guest comes to you and says, this is really important to me, Mm -hmm. this is why I'm at a historic site, I would like to connect with you on this. And if you personally feel comfortable exploring that, I think that's a great way to make a connection with a guest and to spark a conversation about about real history. Mm -hmm. I think just because we're talking about the paranormal doesn't mean, as I think we've certainly proven tonight, doesn't mean that you're not talking about accurate history. Mm -hmm. I think it can be a great opening for that conversation. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I, and I am always honest, just to, just to throw that out there. But yeah, um, but, but, yeah but, is, but you need to make sure that you don't have repercussions right. from from supervisors right. in that situation. Yeah. And I think there are situations and supervisors mm-hmm. where you could be worried mm-hmm. about that legitimately. Well, I was I was just going to say that that part of I think part of the, the trepidation, the whole "am I selling out my professional credentials <laughs> by acknowledging this?" is sort of goes back to the fact that the paranormal does not have a good reputation mm-hmm. as far as yeah. you know, regardless of of is it true or not it's just this is a field that attracts Mm -hmm. um you know griftiness (laughs) charlatans (laughs) perfect i love what you said about having it be a way to connect with visitors to a location because i know in in teaching be very careful not to just tell students oh that's you know if they saw i saw this video on youtube and blah 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 YouTube's dumb. You should read books. Yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna. <laughs> no. I'm not gonna say that right? because I would like them to take another history class and to learn more. You know, to have more perspective. And you you can't you can't sort of sacrifice these connections on the altar of of adhering to a a strict definition of what a history professional should always do mm-hmm. in in every circumstance. So and, I think that's a really good point you made. And history has many sort of entry points, right? Like right. it is literally the story of human existence. <laughs> And so, you know, there are so many things that a person can be interested in. And, and if that's if that's what their interest is, then I th- no problem with it. <laughs> if if that's if that's where you're the angle that you want to look at things from, if that's what brings you to the museum and gets you asking questions and makes you curious, then I'm going to feed that curiosity as best as I can, because that's what makes us thoughtful, critical thinkers. <laughs> I had an example from Colonial Williamsburg. I went on their um, tour. They're one of my case studies for my dissertation. And I went on their kind of ghosty, haunty tour. And I really liked the approach that they took on the tour that I was on. I don't know if they change it, but I there were three different stories. There was one story that was kind of a very traditional, we're in this old house. Here's the stories. You know, staff has heard bumps in the night, etc. The second story was that the ghost that had been allegedly viewed or photographed was the ghost of a of a a contemporary interpreter who had Mm. passed away. So that story was not just about oldie timey ghosts, but it was about kind of the, the, the museum as a, as a workspace Mm -hmm. and who works here and who does this job. And then the final story that they told um, was they, they brought us into an 18th century dining room and they sat us around the table and they said, what do you do after a dinner party? You might tell a couple Mm -hmm. of ghost stories. And they told us an 18th century ghost story. And I, I love that idea of, we have always told mm-hmm. these stories. We have always been interested in these questions. What did people in the period that we're studying think about the supernatural? Yeah. How did they approach it? And I That's loved really that. Cool. <laughs> I thought that was so well done. Yeah. Well, thank you, Claire, for joining us. <laughs> and um, this has been 
fascinating from a supernatural perspective and a historical perspective. And um, we promise we are not on the payroll of the tourism board of Mackinac <laughs> Island, but no. it is an amazing place. And um, if they would like to give us a cut, uh, we would <laughs> welcome it. So if you go to Mackinac Island, tell them tell them you heard about Mackinac Island here on the show. And um, and we'd appreciate that. But, um, but, but thank you, Claire. And um, I think that about wraps it up. Thank you for having me. This has been such a pleasure, you guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Haunting History of Mackinac was written by Samantha Engel and produced by Aaron Gullius and Samantha Engel and special appearance by Claire. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore. Hey everybody, it's Samantha. I need to add a bit of a postscript to this episode. Um, there was something that I said while recording that when I said it, I thought, ooh, that's that's not quite right. <laughs> um, but I just kept talking as one sometimes does while recording. And the next morning, I still felt kind of icky and weird and bad about it. So I texted Aaron and said that I needed to correct this wrong. So so I'm recording this after the fact. Um, and if you recall, when I'm discussing the history of the Mission House boarding school, I mentioned that the Europeans used the indigenous people as pawns in their you know conquests for land and things. And the fact of the matter is, is that that is a very two-dimensional look at what was going on because of course they thought that's what they were doing but this view really takes away all of the agency that the Native Americans had because they too were trying to ally themselves with those that they thought would you know respect their um their treaties, uh, respect their their land, um, you know, where they were living and, and, and trading and working <laughs> and everything. Um, and also would, you know, just kind of respect their culture. Um, and in some cases, that meant kind of leave us alone to our thing up here. <laughs> um, and so there are times when they feel that the French are going to do this. There are times um, actually during the French and or I'm sorry, during the War of 1812, when they think the British are going to be the ones to ally themselves with because the Americans clearly are going to want to push westward and take over anything. And so I really just wanted to make sure that I um, shared this note with you because it's important to me to get history right <laughs> and to um, share these stories from really all all perspectives. And so everybody was, you know, they were making decisions, they were, you know, working to um, Im improve or preserve, um, you know, the, the ways of life that they had. Um, and so the way I said it, I just wasn't quite comfortable with. So hopefully this all makes sense. <laughs> um, and, and you have a little bit of a better idea um, about um, some of these alliances and things that were going on.